So let's just acknowledge that, and, and of course the Palestinian trauma did not begin October the 7th, and history did not begin October the 7th. But what I'm trying to acknowledge here is that it's almost impossible to speak about this subject, to say anything about it, without somebody being hurt, somebody being triggered, somebody being offended. Now, I've been speaking on this subject for 50 years or more, I should say, since 1967. My own particular history is that I was a Jew growing up in Antisemitic Eastern Europe who found in Zionism a salvation, an answer to my self-rejection, a source of pride, a source of commitment to creating a land for a people that has never had it. And I was completely committed to that cause. Welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast. Today we present the first part of a conversation around the ongoing violence in Palestine and Israel. And this episode contains the opening talk by Gabor Mate from an online community gathering hosted by Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo entitled Roots Run Deep, Collective and Individual Trauma in Palestine and Israel, which was recorded on November 3rd, 2023. And the video version of this conversation is available on our website, scienceandnonduality.com and our YouTube page. And those videos include questions from the audience, which have been omitted from today's podcast episode. And so this episode is the opening remarks by Gabor in which he contextualizes the war, which is happening now through the lens of historical complexity and the dynamics of trauma, colonization, and religion. In the show notes for today's episode, you can find links to SANS resources for Palestine and Israel for ways that you can support the situation there. And of course, we'll have a link in the show notes to the original video version of this conversation if you'd like to watch it. And there will be a part two for this series of Roots Run Deep, again with Dr. Gabor Mate live on Friday, December 15th from 9 to 10.30 a.m. Pacific time, live on Zoom and YouTube. And to register to this event, head over to our website and click the link in the show notes where you can donate and join the conversation on December 15th and submit questions for Dr. Mate. So now we present Roots Run Deep Collective and Individual Trauma in Palestine, Israel, on the Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. What we're seeing today in, in Palestine, in Israel, it has a long history and it's a complex reality on many levels from political 
colonial settler methodologies and ideologies, religious, there are many, many layers that have contributed to the situation today. And of course, there is the trauma layer that we will use that lens mostly today, hopefully, to address the situation. What would you see? What do you see? What is the collective trauma, individual trauma that has led us to where we are today? And and there is two different situations, one in the Israel and Palestine and one here in the West for those of us who are just uh, witnessing what's unfolding there. And well, trauma is um, very much um, at the source of origin of this whole tragic situation. So first of all, let's just acknowledge that right now, on both sides, and when I say both sides, I don't just mean in Palestine, Israel, I also mean anybody who's taken a side on this issue, one way or the other, there's tremendous trauma. I mean, what happened on October the 7th um, was a traumatic event uh, for a lot of people, um, not just for the people directly affected, either by their relatives or, or friends, people they knew uh, being killed or, or abducted, but by also the whole community that identifies with them. And... Um, it's painful, it's traumatic, and, and, and people's responses of pain and rage and even wanting revenge are totally understandable. Especially when from a certain point of view, it um, flows into a long history of Jews being killed. And so from the perspective of those that identify with Israel, as the state of the Jews, a state that was established to end the Jewish trauma. From that perspective, what happened on October the 7th, the largest number of Jews being killed since the Second World War, civilians, is but another horrific example of the anti-Semitic curse that has beset Jewish history. And a lot of people are experiencing it that way. And that's understandable. From a subjective perspective, I'll be talking about it from an objective perspective, which is different. But subjectively, in terms of what people feel and perceive, that's all particularly normal and understandable. The Zionist movement itself was a response to trauma. It was a response to the persecution of Jews, particularly in Eastern Europe. And most of the early Zionist leaders were uh, born in what are now parts of Poland or Ukraine or Russia. Jews whose families and whose communities had suffered these murderous pogroms. And looked at it from that perspective, October 7th, which is the latest of a string of atrocities that Jews have experienced. That's understandable. On the other hand, or at the same time, you and I, Mo and Rizio, and your film crew, we were in Palestine last year and working in the occupied territories. 
with women tortured in Israeli jails. And as one friend of ours there told us, a woman whose neck had been broken by the Israeli army in a peaceful demonstration, she said to me, there's no post-traumatic stress disorder here because the trauma is never post. It's ongoing. So let's just acknowledge that and, and of course, the Palestinian trauma did not begin October the 7th. And history did not begin October the 7th. But what I'm trying to acknowledge here is that it's almost impossible to speak about this subject, to say anything about it, without somebody being hurt, somebody being triggered, somebody being offended. Now, I've been speaking on this subject for 50 years or more, I should say, since 1967. My own particular history is that I was a Jew growing up in anti-Semitic Eastern Europe who found in Zionism a salvation, an answer to my self-rejection, a source of pride, a source of commitment to creating a land for a people that has never had it. And I was completely committed to that cause. In 1967, I'm just giving my personal history here. I had to ask myself a question. This is the time of the Vietnam War, where you could watch on television as the American military systematically murdered 3 million Vietnamese peasants in the service of a cause that was based on a complete pack of lies, as became evident to the Pentagon Papers and many other revelations and just how the whole thing was an unspeakable evil based on lies. And the North American press, the New York Times and Time Magazine and the Canadian newspapers and the television uh, programs were all enthusiastically in support of it for a long time. And in 1967, when a war broke up in Israel and, and the United States, I had to ask myself, well, why is the same media? And by the way, I volunteered to go to Israel at the time of the war. Mm-hmm. My brothers, my brother went, but my visa didn't come through in time. But then I had to ask myself, why is the same media that is lying so ruthlessly about Vietnam, about this mass murder, so enthusiastically in support of Israel? And I began to do some research. And I came to a completely different view of history than I had learned and imbibed and, and enthused about as a Zionist. And I wrote an article then, I'm not gonna go into the details, but I, I researched an article, I published it in the student newspaper. I was 23 years old at the time, which I pointed out that contrary to the narrative that Israel was attacked by all these Arab countries, Israel is the one that did the attacking in order to seize territory, and they'll never give it back. That article got me kicked out of my father's home and really unpopular in the Jewish community. But I made a decision a long time ago that I have to follow my own truth. I say my own truth. That doesn't make me right, but just Mm -hmm. to perceive the truth. A precious object on my desk is this wooden pen. You see the teeth marks at the end of it? It used to belong to my grandfather. He was a doctor and a writer. 
like his grandson. He died in Auschwitz. And he was a Zionist and a friend of some of the great Zionist leaders. But he's also a very humane man. I decided a long time ago that the suffering that human beings impose each other will never have my silence. And I don't care which way the chips fall. Now, so I've been speaking out on this issue, not just recently, but since 1967. And believe me, it's not, it's not made me popular at times in my family. I'm talking about my extended family or certainly my community. But that's a decision that I made. Now, that doesn't mean that I endorse the killing of civilians. That doesn't mean that the atrocity that occurred on October the 7th is anything less than an atrocity. But the question is, how should we approach that atrocity? It's easy to condemn it. And necessary. But it's even more important to understand it. If we're going to move to any kind of a peaceful solution, we have to understand what's going on. And if I can sum up, in the words of Amir Haas, who's an Israeli journalist, and by the way, in my conversation today, you're not going to find me quoting Palestinians. You're going to find me quoting Jews and Israelis, historians and journalists. Which itself is the kind of racism on my part. Because why don't I quote Palestinians? Well, because I want to be credible. And what the Palestinians say has been dismissed for so long. So I could quote you Palestinians, but you wouldn't believe me. And some of you have a hard time believing me, even when I quote Jews and Israelis. But consider the possibility, all of you, that the narrative that you've accepted may be based on some truths, may contain some truth, but may not be the truth. And what I found out a long time ago is that there's another narrative here. Now, in the late 1900s, sorry, the late uh, 1800s, when Theodor Herzl, a Hungarian Jewish journalist living in Vienna, first conceived the idea of the Jewish state, and his birthplace in Budapest stands very close to the great synagogue in Budapest where my uncle used to be the chief cantor. And when Herzl wrote the Jewish state as a way of trying to answer the unspeakable Jewish suffering in Eastern Europe. Some rabbis from Vienna sent two of their colleagues to the promised land, to Palestine, at that time under Turkish occupation, to look at the reality of Herzl's dream. And these rabbis came back with a very famous statement. They said, the bride is beautiful, but she's already taken. By which they meant, Yes, Palestine is beautiful, but there's already a people there. And so the Zionist project 
whatever validity you might think that it had in terms of Jewish history and Jewish redemption could only be accomplished at the expense of the people that already were living in that land and had been for a long time. And that's been the dilemma. So that means that out of the Jewish trauma, a trauma had to be imposed on the local population. And it could not have been any, it could not have been done any other way. This is not retrospective. People recognize this at the time. I remember a Zionist leader saying in 1905 that we talk about a, a people without a land for a land without a people. But there's no land without a people. There's a local population. Let me quote to you before I come to the end of this brief introductory comments. Two great Zionist leaders, one of them a friend of my grandfather's, Vladimir Jabotinsky. He was the founder of the, what's called the revisionist wing of Zionism, which became the Herut party, which is today's Likud party. And I'm going to quote you David Ben-Gurion, who was the head of the labor Zionist movement, what became the Mapai party, today's labor party, and he was the first prime minister of Israel. They were both Eastern European Jews. They both said in almost similar terms in the 1930s that we talk about Arab terrorism, but they're not terrorists. They're people fighting, fighting for their own land, which we're threatening to take away from them. In their situation, we would do the same thing. They understood that, but they just both felt that the Jewish right was more dominant or the Jewish need was more dire. So they were going to do whatever they had to do. And what they had to do occurred in 1947-48, in 1956, and 1967, and ever since, which is the forceful displacement of the local population and their oppression. That's how they had to do it. There was no other way. If you don't believe me, read any number of Israeli historians who have researched. So don't argue with me, but argue with the Israeli historians. Ilan Pape, Benny Morris, Avi Schleim, Sema Flapan, Tom Segev, any number of them who have documented the forceful, violent expulsion of the Palestinians and murders. In uh, 1956, in Gaza, there was an Israeli soldier killed. And Moshe Dayan, chief of the defense staff, gave a speech saying, let's not blame these people for hating us. How would they otherwise? We've taken their lands. They're watching us till their soil from Gaza. Of course they hate us. So there's a... Uh, lot of hatred. I'm not going to go through all the history. I'm not going to go through all the massacres. Massacres. That have occurred. And have been perpetrated on the Palestinians. Historically, not in the least questionable. All documented by Israeli sources. I'm not saying all this to take sides. I actually don't take sides. I'm not, it's not that I'm pro-Palestinian. I just put truth. I just want to present the truth the way as I understand it. 
It's only to, only if we recognize what happened can we move forward. None of this justifies what happened on October the 7th any more than there's justification for the mass killings of Palestinians in the past by Israeli forces. I could name you a dozen examples if you like. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about what do we need to do to move forward? And for God's sakes, the minimum that we need to do to move forward is to understand the other person's experience. To stand just for one minute in the shoes of the other person. What is their subjective experience? The complicating factor is that the Western media is always lines up with Western foreign policy. So when Western foreign policy called for the assault on Iraq, we heard all about the weapons of mass destruction, which was a total lie. When American policy demanded the bombing of Vietnam, they came up, they came up with the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which never happened. It's the same now. Which means that the narrative in which events occur is always in the Western press, Israel defending itself against unwarranted terrorist attacks. But who those terrorists are and what are they responding to is never presented. You're not aware of it. And so I'll finish with um, just a quote again from an Israeli source. Um, let me just open up on my computer here. And I'm not doing this to convince you of anything. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm telling this to convince you that the point of view that I'm putting forward is at least as grand as in history as the one that you might believe in. And that if you're going to move forward, let's just understand the competing narratives and don't just reject the other out of hand without actually investigating it. So I'm going to read you a quote here very quickly. Um, I should have had this ready, but uh, here it is. This is from the Israeli journalist Amir Haas, who, um, who has lived in the occupied territories, who lives, who's lived in Gaza, and whose um, heart-rending interview with democracy now, you should all watch. This is an Israeli. Her heart is broken by what her country is doing to the Palestinians. And she writes, in a few days, Israelis went through what Palestinians have experienced as a matter of routine for decades and are still experiencing. Military incursions, death, cruelty, slain children, bodies piled up in the road, siege, fear, anxiety over loved ones, captivity, and searing humiliation. So writes Amir Haas. What happened on October the 7th, I wish it never had happened. It's an unspeakable tragedy. No children should be killed. No civilians should be abducted. Um, no innocents should be killed. Nobody should have to live in fear. And if we're going to move forward, we have to understand that this is how the other side has lived for 80 years. 
And if you don't know that, I don't blame you. Because in the Western context, you'd really have to research it for yourself because the media is not telling you the truth. Did you guys know, did you know that the former chief of the Israeli defense staff four months ago compared the situation of the Palestinians in the West Bank to that of the Jews in Nazi Germany? Because in Nazi, not the genocide, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about before the war, where the Nazi branchers, the thugs, could attack Jews and destroy Jewish homes and, 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 and shops and, and assault Jews without impunity. When the police showed up, they supported the Nazis. And the former deputy chief of the Israeli defense staff said, we're doing the same thing to the Palestinians. When the settlers show up to harass and even kill, Palestinians in the West Bank, the army shows up to protect the settlers. And this year, before October the 7th, over 250 Palestinians had been killed by the army and the settlers in the West Bank, including children. This stuff is not reported in the Western press. So just consider that your perspective comes from a certain point of view that may need to be examined for the salvation of your own truth. I'm going to end with something. This question of anti-Semitism. Um, yes, there's anti-Semitism in the world. And there will be some anti-Semites who will use the actions of Israel to prove how evil Jews are. There are some people like that. There always have been people like that. But anti-Semitism has got nothing to do with Jews in the sense that it doesn't originate from anything that Jews do or don't do. Anti-Semitism, like all forms of racism, originates in some sickness of the soul and the mind in the, in, in the, in the, in the racist. Racism is rising in today's world. If you want to see racism, look what happens to Muslims in Europe right now, in France. Want to see racism? Look at anti-Muslim sentiments in North America. There's also rising anti-Semitism in North America. Absolutely true. As society is fragmenting, getting more toxic, you're going to see more and more racism. The question is, does criticism of Israel contribute to that? Well, and especially I've been told, apart from the fact that I've been told that I betrayed my own people, well, no, I didn't because I don't identify my own people with the state of Israel. It's the state of Israel that identifies uh, Jews with its actions, but I don't. But think about it for a minute. I don't know how you feel about the war in Ukraine, but most people would agree that Russia had no right to invade Ukraine. Most people would agree with that. Now, does that make you anti-Russian? If you criticize that action? Or does it make you anti-war? Or maybe even anti-Putin? That's the first question. The second question is, if all Russians you knew 
all around the world supported the invasion of Ukraine, which they don't. But if they all did, which would make you more anti-Russian? If all Russians in the world with the one voice supported the invasion of Ukraine, or if you saw legitimate debate amongst Russians, and Russians, some of them escaped not to be in the army, and some of them criticized their government, and some of them denounced it. Which is more likely to make you anti-Russian? Well, for God's sakes, when Holocaust survivors, and I'm not the only one, people, there are many, stand up against what's happening in Palestine, against the actions of the Israeli government. When Jews got arrested in New York for protesting the war, when Jews got arrested in Jerusalem for protesting the war, when Emir Haas, when Ilan Papi, when Gideon Levy, when other Israelis speak out against the oppression of Palestinians, is that going to increase anti-Semitism? Or will the people see, non-Jews see, that Jews are like everybody else, there's differences of opinion, but you can't pin the actions of a government on a whole people. Now, which is more likely to support anti-Semitism? Jewish silence, right or wrong, or Jewish speaking out, right or wrong? So this argument that criticizing Israel, especially by Jews, foments anti-Semitism, I mean, it's just so illogical, it's barely even worth talking about, in my view. Look, I'll stop here. This is a Q&A. That was my introduction. I want you to know where I was coming from. But I'm not coming from support for Hamas. I'm not coming from support for the Palestinian Authority. The Muslim is a fundamentalist organization. I also don't single it out for special criticism. It is no more murderous than the IDF has been over the decades. And I can prove that to you. It is no more murderous. I don't support the Palestinian Authority. It's a corrupt organization that has long betrayed its own people. The question we have to ask is, what gives rise to such desperation and such hatred? And how can we move forward in the future? Because Hamas was nothing until quite recently. It was nothing. Did you know that it was the Israeli government that supported Hamas in the beginning as an antidote to the PLO? That's just a historical fact. Actually, there is a quote from Arvon Cohen, a former Israeli religious affair officials in Gaza, who says, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. So that's... Yeah. So, so the, what, what feeds the hatred and desperation... See, after, after the Oslo Accords in 1999, where briefly the Palestinians falsely they were sold a bill of goods. That, was, that agreement was no agreement at all, and I knew it at the time. But the Palestinians thought it was. For a few years, there was no suicide bombings, there was no terrorism. What fed the rise of that desperation again, the suicide bombs and the rise of Hamas, is the betrayal of the Palestinian dream of liberation. So... Yeah. The disrespect, actually, of the agreement instead the of Israel removing uh, its settlements. settlements from the West Bank, they continued invading and disrespecting the agreed boundaries. And, uh, no, yeah. actually, I hate to tell you, it was more subtle than that. 
1999 at the Oslo Agreement. The reason I thought this was total nonsense is because Israel never agreed to stop expanding the settlements. All they agreed to is to consult for five years on a possible agreement. The PLO sold out their people. And because the PLO sold out their people, hence the rise of this extremist organization, Hamas. Anyway, let me stop here. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Kabul. Really appreciate you being with us today. We'll do continue. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.